Testing Testing is brought to you by Epigram, an AI-powered gradebook. When I taught classics, grading was tough, so I co-founded Epigrammer to get my best feedback once and repurpose it everywhere. With this podcast, I hope you'll test some of your assumptions about what it means to get an education. How do you know what's history? In 1964, What Happened in History was reprinted in Baltimore with a foreword and footnotes by Penguin Books. Take it back now, y'all. That book was written by V. Gordon Child, an accomplished and somewhat controversial archaeologist trained at the University of Sydney and the University of Oxford. Right, come on, y'all, clap it up. Professor Graham Clark of the Australian Academy of Science in his foreword for Child's book noted that, more perhaps than any other man, he showed how by using the data won by archaeologists and natural scientists, it was possible to gain a new view of what constituted human history. Right foot, left foot. Other footnotes from that book speak to the unfinished business of collecting data. For example, to the left. recent work in Kurdistan, notably at Shanadar, has thrown clearer light on the beginning of incipient domestication. Come on. Or, Come on. the picture of hominid evolution has undergone major changes in recent years. Much more clearly defined notions now exist about the hominid forms present in the early Pleistocene. Cha-cha now, y'all. Perhaps what's most ambitious about Child's book, though, is its attempt to reconcile the rise of ancient civilizations like Sumer or Mycenaean Greece with the unwritten record of prehistory. In plotting the arc of history, then, Child observed, In the long run, an ideology can survive only if it facilitates the smooth and efficient functioning of the economy. Which brings us back to Baltimore. In 1964, the Beatles were playing at the Civic Center and the Baltimore Colts, remember them, were headed to the NFL championship game. The Civil Rights Act was signed by President Johnson and the Baltimore City Public Accommodations and Fair Employment Practice Ordinances, with the support from the NAACP, guaranteed an end to lawful discrimination in employment practices and educational institutions. Our next guest, Dr. Sonia Santelisis, CEO of Baltimore Public Schools, has spent much of her career trying to open up educational institutions for all students, but her work in dealing with what happened in history stretches far back before Baltimore. Um, yes, well, I, I actually started um, in New York um, during the founding year of Teach for America um, and worked with the national staff for two years and then um, went to teach in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. Um, and helped, was part of a team of folks who started a new school there, um, the Decatur Clearpool School at the time, and uh, was part of that team, and um, that was a great experience, and then worked with the New York City Algebra Project, and I headed that up, um, and got a chance to work with great, great teachers in Brooklyn uh, around how to give um, younger kids and their communities access um, to math. Bob Moses is still... Um, a force in that organization. We have a local algebra project chapter here in Baltimore City. And then left there and did go to Boston uh, to go to graduate school. And while I was there um, studying, did some consulting, and then became the assistant superintendent for professional development in Boston. Um, then um, was the acting deputy for teaching and learning and then supervised uh, pilot schools. I was the assistant superintendent for pilot schools in Boston. And then after that came to Baltimore City as the chief academic officer, which was, which was also um, fantastic. It's what brought my uh, family to Baltimore. Worked here and then left after Andres Alonzo left 
um, went to uh, the Education Trust, uh, worked with Katie Haycock and the team there um, on education advocacy for three years, which was wonderful, being able to just advocate for African-American, Latino, and low-income kids, which was great, and then came back to Baltimore two years ago as the um, chief executive officer. So I think you have, my, you have most of my professional life story, maybe one or two things on the side that I did too. Before we jump back into the interview, would you like to share a bit about your educational background, Quinn? Sure. I stayed in my local public school district from K through 12, but I know you went to a pretty elite private high school. Right, so we probably have some different experiences regarding government funding and resources. Yeah, I'm sure. I have an older sister who was three grades ahead of me, so I saw firsthand the opportunities that she had enjoyed were cut by the time I reached a certain grade. My mom used to say it was like watching a wave crashing in slow motion. And in Baltimore, slow motion might also describe the impact of redlining. One of the things I wanted to talk to you more about, Dr. Santalisis, was the history of redlining. But for some of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that term, could you provide a brief history? Right. So redlining is really um, a policy and practice that steered and eventually relegated um, particular portions of the city um, to be inhabited by particular populations. And so in Baltimore, you had everything from neighborhood covenants in my current neighborhood of Roland Park, where the neighborhood covenant for years um, prohibited any selling um, of homes to um, either Jewish residents or residents of color. Um, and it made that section of the city demographically very different. What What is particularly powerful about redlining is that it was legislated, um, that it was part of practice, it was part of sanctioned practice. And I said to a group last night that when you really dig into the history of redlining, Baltimore taught the rest of the country how to redline. Um, and people are sometimes shocked by that. If you're not from this area, everybody assumes, oh, it must have been Mississippi or Arkansas. And it's not. It was Baltimore. And it was actually very deftly and deliberately done. And so the legacy of that, while initially may not have um, been immediately obvious, um, we see today, led to an eventual underinvestment of resources in particular communities and by resources. You know, I mean everything from um, where the jobs are. Again, you know, we just had, um, you know, the state made the decision not to build um, public transportation across a broad swath of Baltimore City and just said, nope, we're not going to do it, we'll give you buses. Um, but other sections of the state uh, were invested in, in much more um, what I would call commuter-friendly transportation. And so the, what is interesting, and you know this was part of my talk at Carnegie, is that the legacy of that um, legislated policy-driven decision to section off particular areas of the city legally to only be inhabited by particular residents um, now really reflects a lot of the patterns of investment and, frankly, school performance that we see today. At the Carnegie Summit on Improvement in Education, I believe you talked about the importance of collecting new sets of data. So what types of data are now being used by Baltimore City Schools? So um, so one of the things we've done, and I can really, I'm really only 
qualified to speak about the school system in particular. And so within the school system, what we have done, um, and we actually showed some of these at our recent um, school board meeting, was um, we took those 1930s um, redlining maps in the city, came on came up with our own community conditions index to look at what we call levels of investment in particular neighborhoods. And it, and it, it included everything from safety um, to how many residents have library cards. And when we did that mapping, a lot of the under-resourced areas of the city matched very much the 1930s map. There was very little. There was some difference, but very little. Um, and so what we have done as the school system is we've said, okay, um, where are we deploying our, resource, our resources? What are our policy decisions that we're making as the school system? Um, absent what housing is doing or transportation or safety, um, but just from our perspective, what we have control over what are we doing? And so we began mapping resources and what I call resources of learning and resources of access and investment. So where do we place gifted in advanced learning sites? Where are the schools that have the widest variety of advanced placement courses? Um, where are the more robust arts programming? Um, and that now um, is part of how we make decisions about where we make additional investments um, as a school district. So that's one way that very tangibly, um, we map, for example, our 21st century school buildings, which are brand new school buildings in a city that has the oldest and most decrepit um, supply of schools in the state of Maryland. And so we had about 24 schools coming online. We mapped those um, new schools to that community conditions index to say, are we re-redlining? So that's one very direct way that we use that lens when we're communicating to the public and to our board and to ourselves, um, how we're planning um, and how we are frankly, um, as one exhibit that we had downstairs um, said, how are we undesigning the red line? The red line was initially designed, how are we undesigning it? The second way is really looking at what I call educational redlining that occurs every day in classrooms and every day in schools. Who gets access to rigorous text? Who gets access to um, enriched content? Um, and that, that is made up, and this is one of the things I talked about at Carnegie, that, um, that is made up of the series of decisions that frontline educators make on a regular basis. And so this is, this is all a question of exposure, of additional support, and really understanding before we label any group as well, they didn't really want it badly enough, that student didn't have the drive or the motivation um, to say, let's let's step back and see what our level of investment is, whether it is human resources, so another area we're looking at is where are we putting our most highly effective principals, right? So we had three chronically underperforming um, uh, K-5 and K-8 schools. And, you know, based on feedback from the ground, based on a principal and his team at one of the only successful turnaround schools in the state that was in Baltimore City, they made a proposal to create a professional learning community with their higher performing school and three other schools. But one of the things that we did differently um, was we strategically staffed those schools and we recruited some of the best principals and their teams um, and teams that they could select um, to 
then go to those schools. And I will tell you, I was at one just yesterday, and that school is palpably different. It will probably take a while for instruction to fully catch up in terms of the the actual achievement of young people on standardized tests, but anybody walking through, we had about four or five board members visit, everyone unanimously is the level, the amount of teaching and learning going on there now uh, because of the shift that a high quality principal brings um, is palpable. And so even the resource of, of human expertise, of professional expertise, where are we deploying our most expert teachers, our most expert school psychologists, our most expert guidance counselors and teachers and principals. Um, and we're, we're doing that through strategic staffing. Um, and, and the challenge is everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, um, most people will say they believe in equity um, unless it means redeploying who gets the best <laughs> and who gets more. Um, then somehow equity becomes a dirty word, right? Because it means, what do you mean you're getting this fantastic principal over there, I want them to stay, you know, at my school. So it's, um, but it's, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. The first time I listened to that section of the interview, it really resonated with me because these in-classroom discretionary resources are so important in public schools. Like I said, I had an older sister, so by the time I was in elementary school, my parents were already aware of the long-term ramifications decisions made by our classroom teachers had on our education. In fourth and fifth grade, we had enrichment classes that were populated based on teacher recommendations, and these kids went on to have first dibs on upper-level sections and eventually AP classes and the best teachers at our district. And who set the curriculum for those enrichment classes? In my school, there was a teacher who was assigned to these classes, and she came up with the curriculum on her own. Due to budget cuts, this program was eventually scrapped. Well, as it so happens, I was interested in the idea of some students having access to more rigorous materials. And in looking at what happened in history, I must admit that I went back into the YouTube archives to 2011, when you were chief academic officer of Boston Public Schools and you were giving a um, TED talk on the idea of rigor in education. Oh my gosh, remind me what I said. There was a specific <laughs> teacher, I think in Boston, who asked something along the lines of, what do you mean by rigor? Should I be asking more questions? And in an earlier podcast, I spoke with Dr. Ryan Baker of the Penn Center for Learning Analytics about latent knowledge estimation, a process to help gauge difficulty by determining a student's knowledge based on their patterns of correctness. And I'm curious how Baltimore public schools are empowering teachers to become better researchers of their mm -hmm. school. Well, and, I, and it's a great question and one that I get frequently from teachers, right? They're pushing us. I had, I've had probably two or three meetings over the last week and a half um, with groups of teachers, um, some informally gathered, some who are part of established organizations. Um, and one of the things that I have found with all of those teachers is that if you can make kind of a sound argument that is grounded in practice, that's grounded in the research, um, you actually don't get as much pushback, at least I don't. Um, where the pushback comes is their ability to shape, design, and inform. Right, so you know, we thought in Baltimore City that a rigorous curriculum um, had to be 
written and designed by every teacher in every school. Um, and actually, that's not true. right? <laughs> like there's a lot of research um, that's out there now, particularly with college and career ready standards that says these are actually the components. And so then the question we've been asking teachers and what they're asking is, where do we get to insert the pieces that are missing? So one great example in Baltimore City is there is no kind of standing curriculum. I think that there are some materials that do a better job with cultural relevancy and appealing to um, the cultures and verifying the cultures, particularly of young people of color and young people from first generation college backgrounds. Um, and one of the things that you know we decided was, wow, we can create our own unit. So we're gonna do that within middle school, but we're not creating the whole curriculum, right? We will still adopt a standards-based you know, curriculum because that's hard work to do, right? That's hard work. But there, can we create spaces for teachers um, to insert what they know about kids? Um, to design a unit is very different than designing a K through 12 spiraled content curriculum. And so what we've done is created space for that. Um, we need to do more of that. And teachers are saying that. It's also um, teachers being able to meet with me and senior leadership and say, these are the things that you can do to improve our experience. I've, I've met with at least seven or eight um, affinity groups or, you know, you know, special education teachers or early childhood teachers or first year teachers. And from each of those groups, um, we've had great feedback. And from a number of those groups, we've been able to identify individual teachers who are now part of central teams based on um, their insight and the work that they've done. It's not, you know, a lot of districts will do a general all call and they pick the same teachers. What we're trying to do um, is say, how do, we, how do we increase those opportunities? We're switching our PED, our professional development model this year. Teachers nationwide have said, um, we learn better when the learning is closer to the classroom level and with our colleagues. And so we said, okay, it means more work for central office, um, but how do we actually do that across 150 schools? And so um, we're gonna roll that out this year and teachers have cheered, teachers and principals have cheered. It doesn't mean it's gonna be perfect. It doesn't mean we're gonna get it totally right, um, but we're doing that. They also said, you know, this is great to have all of this, you know, theoretical piece, but when we are learning the content of the curriculum that we are currently being asked to teach, it has more relevance. And so what we've said is, okay, let's put the foundational theoretical underpinnings um, intertwined with what they actually have to do. And so we're flipping that frame as well. And a lot of that came from feedback in the field. So it's a combination of actually soliciting feedback, doing something with the feedback, and then opening up spaces for teachers to lead. And we're not, we're not nearly there yet, um, but we are making steps. We are making steps. Do you think there is a lack of consensus at the legislative level about what adequacy means. Obviously, for my children, when I <laughs> when I have children, I may have one definition of adequacy, but for someone else's children, do you think that measures related to adequacy at the governmental level fail because of the letter of the law or its application? I think it's a comfort and complacency um, around definitions that we have for our own children of what is adequate as opposed to those we have for other people's children. I think that's a piece. I think we as educators have a greater responsibility to be clear 
and transparent, and I say that forthrightly, um, about what those challenges are, what we are doing. That's why I've said from the beginning since I arrived, one of the first things I did was I looked at the audits, and I said, what are we doing with the money? Um, we called in a national, national folks um, from ERS to say, take a look. Where is the money going? Like, are we bleeding it somewhere? And we do have areas. Like, we have a large number of small schools, and so we're working to right-size that. Um, but what I love to emphasize is that we are now on our third outside commission to study school funding in Maryland that has come back and said Baltimore City is insufficiently funded. And again, I keep going back to this is a state that has one of the highest proportions, keep in mind I'm from Boston, um, has one of the highest proportions of college educated residents has the highest um, income level. It's one of the wealthiest states, if not the wealthiest state in the country. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, what is acceptable? Um, and I can say, look, there was tons left to do in Boston Public Schools. Boston Public Schools does not have all of the money that they should have, nor do Worcester Public Schools or Salem Public Schools. But the difference is, and I've said this before, there is absolutely no way Boston Public Schools would ever be allowed to be funded at the level that Baltimore Public Schools are. And that is a question that this community, our community, is gonna have to answer. And I think it's because people think it's okay. And I do think what it boils down to is an other people's children argument. And the benchmark that I have always used, um, you know, from the first time I read Lisa Delpit, right, was what do I want for my kids? And do I want something different? I don't want my daughters leaving middle school never having studied a foreign language or a world language. But for other people's kids, it's okay. I don't want my daughters to go through 12th grade and have never had the opportunity to be in a school musical. There are communities and zip codes for which those would be fighting words and people would be flooding school board meetings and rushing City Hall. But somehow, when it doesn't occur in Baltimore City, the narrative becomes mismanagement, right? It, it must be mismanagement, even though, as I noted before, we're on our third outside commission that has said Baltimore City is underfunded. Somehow when Baltimore City, and I would argue because of the racial and income demographics of the city, um, gets put up to that standard, it's somehow okay. And I, and I, think, I, I really think it's an internal ethical issue, which is, which is what I continue to say. Ah, so we've returned to the question of money. Yes, Quinn, you're right on the money. And in my experience, it was something the students, teachers, and parents talked about all the time. We always felt the pressure of the shrinking budget, and since I was an art student, we were always getting our programs cut back, which is annoying when you're a kid and you know that your dreams, to an extent, rely on your education. That's part of why you switched into the private school system, right? Sort of. An English teacher in my middle school noticed that I was ahead of the curriculum in most classes and recommended that I look at alternatives to public school. I was lucky enough to gain a scholarship to attend a great school, but Dr. Santelises recognizes that many students and families are in similar predicaments. When I asked her to touch upon the most rewarding parts of her job, she touched on some of those sentiments. Oh my gosh, what has been the most rewarding are people, families every day who get so easily dismissed as with, with pat um, labels based on the challenges they face, who with tears in their eyes will say um, they want the best for their kids. And so in one of the 
three schools that I told you we changed the leadership and did some radical staffing. I went to one of those schools, I shall remain nameless, and I had family screaming at me. What are you doing? We like our principal. Like, at least he's nice to us. And da-da-da-da-da. And I said, I want more for your kids. Um, and to have one of the same women scream at me come over the second, third week in school of school and kind of sheepishly say, you are right. This is much better, right? To have a grandmother in tears um, because her fourth grade grandson for the first time can read in a school where we had the courage to change the leader um, and to try something new based on research, not based on fancy. And for her to now say, five months into the school year, my fourth grader, who should have been reading all along, right, is now reading, and she's got tears in her eyes. Like, that's, that's why I get up in the morning, and that's why I do this work. Um, that's why I have the courage um, to go against whatever the political convenience is, um, to say that these kids can learn, that we do have high-quality leaders and teachers in this system. Um, but you know what? If Google has to fire some of their folks, of course I'm going to have to let some of ours go. Um, but we have a critical mass of dedicated professionals um, that when they are given the proper support, do amazing things for kids. And we have families who have gone through... Um, and I, I mean, I have 10-year-olds in this system that have seen more in their 10 years than I have in the, my 50 years of living. And the fact that they and their families still come to us understanding the promise of a high-quality education says to me that's the power of a democracy. That's the power when even the people who have been through the most and served the least know that education and schooling is the beacon for them to assert their agency and them to be able to develop their gifts to give back. And I see like parents lobbying for their kids and even if they're yelling at me about heat, I know they're doing it um, because they love their kids. Um, and that's why I get up every morning. And speaking of loving your kids, how about we circle back to V. Gordon Child? Well, remember how Child claimed that throughout history, an ideology survives based on the smooth and efficient functioning of the economy? Dr. Santelisis mentioned that Maryland is one of the richest states in America and also has a vibrant economy. But within Maryland's capital, its most populous city that makes up slightly more than 10% of the state, the economy is quite different. Last year, the Brookings Institution, a major think tank, issued a report that was bullish on the economic outlook for Baltimore, but more recently, the Bureau of Labor Statistics recorded that Baltimore's poverty rate was over 20%, nearly double Maryland's average. And whether in terms of real wages or unemployment, important indicators of the functioning of any economy, Baltimore struggled to realize some of the same gains as the rest of the state. Yet, in terms of school finance, the same ideas of adequacy and equity govern Baltimore as much as they govern Silver Springs. That really says a lot about what happened in history. Well, history is always happening to us. You think we should just pursue education reform up the Potomac? Only if I can hear more about what happened in those enrichment classes you took. Well, next time on Testing Testing, join us as we interview Senator Chris Coons of Delaware on the Aspire Act. To learn more about guests on Testing Testing, visit us at testingtesting.fm. There, you'll find helpful links to episodes released every other week on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correct the record in some way as well, write our team at writingwriting at testingtesting.fm. That first writing starts with an R. But for now, pencils down. <laughs>